10, Romans chapter 10. Today we're going to study the first 13 verses, but to get started I want to read just the first four verses. If you found chapter 10 of Romans in verse 1, say word. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Let's pray. Father, as always, we ask you to help us this morning that we might understand clearly what your word says and that we might be able to apply it into our lives. Father, there's truth here for us to remember. There's truth here for us to grasp. And we can't grasp any of it unless your Holy Spirit guides us in this word. Have your will and way in our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get to Romans 10, we, um, we're going to see here a big picture of Romans chapter 10, and then we're going to see some lessons. As I went through it, I was studying the, the big picture, the main point of it, and then I, I just pulled out some different lessons that I'm also going to apply to us today. If you remember last time we were in Romans 9, and we spent three weeks in Romans 9, and we talked about how God's people, the people of Israel, had rejected Jesus. The very people you think that would receive Jesus, the Israelites, most of them had rejected Jesus. And so the question of Romans 9 was, because God's people, the Israelites, had rejected Jesus, has God failed? Has God's word failed? And the clear answer Paul gave is, no, of course not. God's word has not failed. It cannot fail because God saves those whom he chooses, whom he will. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 9, that God is sovereign over salvation. And again, we talked about this at length, but some people might say, well, that's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. And maybe those Israelites might say, well, um, that doesn't sound fair. And Romans 10 comes here to us this morning, and it says to us, if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't blame anyone for that. I kind of said it like this, salvation is up to God, but it's on me and you. It's on us. It's, it's up to God. He's sovereignly in control of it, but we all must believe if we are to be saved. And these Jews, according to chapter 9, had stumbled over the stumbling stone, had stumbled over and missed Jesus. So as we come to this text today, the, the thing that stands out to me as I first read the text a few times this week is Paul is continually giving us truth. I mean, Romans is like truth bomb after truth bomb. It's just over and over again, these deep theological truths of God's word. And as he gives it to them here, not only do I hear information, 
But I hear a heart of compassion. Do you see that in verse 1? My, my, desire, my heart's desire is that they might be saved. And so there's a lesson I think we can take from this, and that is that when we share truth, um, we must be careful to do it with a heart of compassion. Paul did not just beat these people over the head. Paul did not just condemn them. He shared truth, but he did so with an attitude of compassion. And in a day in which we live, when people out there in this world need the truth, they need to know God, they need to know about Christ, they need to know about the Word, we sometimes as Christians have a tendency to share the truth in a harsh way or a more judgmental way. And I want to encourage us that when we share the truth of Christ, to do it with a heart of compassion for people. How many unbelievers are turned away by Christians who have good intent, but who turn them off with a prideful attitude about the things of God? Learning the things of God that we've learned, particularly in Romans 8 and 9, should not cause us to be prideful at all. It should cause us to be humble. These are lessons of humility. So our first lesson, you see there is share truth with compassion. Brothers, my heart's desire for them is that they might be saved. But as you notice there in verse 1, he doesn't say only does he desire it. What else does he say there? My heart's desire and what? Prayer. That leads me to my, my second lesson of seven lessons this morning. The second lesson is let your desire fuel your prayers. He really cared about these people. He really desired that, and these are his people, by the way, he really cared that they would know Jesus, and so he prayed about them. Have you, has this ever happened to you? We do this a lot. I know we do. Like, man, so-and-so is sick, and they really need your prayers, and you're like, oh, man, that's, that's, that's rough right there. I hate that they're sick. But then we don't pray for them. You ever done that? I've done that before. Have you ever done it where you're like, Hey, pray for me. Hey, I'll pray for you. But then you don't really pray for them. Like, it's not enough for us just to have a, feel bad for people that are hurting or that are sick or that are down. If we really care about them, we will pray for them, won't we? If we really care about our spouses, our children, our church, if we really care about people who don't know Jesus, as Paul says here, you will not only have a desire for them, but you will, that will come out in the fact that you pray. Let your desires fuel your prayers. If you really care about something, pray about it. If you really care about something, pray. But what Paul knew here as he writes, we talked about this last time, is that many of them were not finding salvation. Many of these Jews were not finding salvation. And so verse 2 tells us why they were not finding it. Look at verse 2 again. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to truth. A zeal or a passion for God, but it is misled. Are there people today who have a passion for God or maybe things of God, but who are misled about their understanding of God? Certainly, right? That's why there's so many different religions. People have this zeal or passion for some type of being that's the creator, but we believe that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible, right? Right? So many people believe that that's why there are many religions and many different sects of religion and, and different groups that are out there. That's why I think there's sometimes cults. There's, they get so passionate about something 
power or something like that and people follow, people get really excited about something sometimes without knowing the truth. Paul was thinking about that in his day. I mean, wasn't Paul an example of that? What was Paul doing before he became a Christian? His name was Saul. Was he just hanging out, making tents? He was persecuting the church, wasn't he? Saul, who became Paul, was passionately, zealously, with all he had, persecuting the church because he thought they were just some band of misfits that were, were not doing the right things of God, and Paul was against them. But he wasn't doing it according to truth, was he? According to the, the real truth. It wasn't until the Lord changed his heart, changed his life, that Paul began to serve with passion and knowledge. That leads me to my third lesson this morning. Make sure your passion for God is built on a right understanding of the Bible. Now, do I want every one of us to be passionate about God? Yes. I think we lack that, to be honest with you. A lot of times we lack the zealousness, passion, energy, excitement for God. I think we do. We sometimes lack that joy. We should be joyous people. Even in tough times, we should be excited about the Lord and what he can do in our lives. I think sometimes we let the world steal that joy from us. Or we let sin rob us of that joy. Make sure your passion for God is built on a right understanding. My uh, grandparents uh, on my mom's side, they ran a pillow factory. Uh, It was a business they ran down there in South Mississippi and they ran it for many, many years and it was very successful in it and and I would go down there sometimes and just hang out and every once in a while they'd put me to work. But um, I was there one day, I think I was doing some kind of little work and like flattening pillows. It was pretty fun to me because this press would just like, poosh, and just flatten them. So it was kind of fun. And I was probably 19, 20 years old in college. And there was this man there. I think he was doing some part-time work for them. And he, he began to talk to me about my life. And he said, what are you doing now? So I'm in college. I'm going to Bible college. And, and so he was like, well, that's pretty good. And his first thought was this. His first thing, he began to tell me in that moment that in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, you must speak in tongues. And, and he was so excited about it. He was, a, a, he was probably a middle-aged black man, and he was just smiling from ear to ear, excited about this, tr- this doctrine he was trying to teach this young college Bible student. And he was like, you'll never go to heaven. I don't care what, what you do, you'll never go to heaven unless you speak in these tongues. And even at 1920, with a very limited Bible knowledge, I knew he was not correct. <laughs> I knew that was not true doctrine. I knew that was not Bible. And I tried to discuss it with him, but I could not overcome his excitement about it. (laughs) And I thought, you know, if I was not a little bit grounded in the Word of God, I would probably listen to this guy because he was so joyous about it. And so, again, energetic about it and happy about this doctrine. He was just so, he was so sure that he was right. And that, to me, is a great illustration of this, of someone who has zeal or passion but not according to the correct biblical knowledge. Listen, passion and zeal and excitement, we need to hear this today. Passion, zeal, and excitement, and I've told you we all need more of it, but listen, just because something is passionate or exciting does not mean it's of God. There are churches this morning who are meeting together 
And their entire goal is to get the group of people together to be riled up in in some type of emotional frenzy. And if that doesn't happen, the pastors will leave there thinking, man, God didn't even do anything today. Where was God today? I know that's true because I've been in those churches before. I know that's true because I'll be honest with you, sometimes I've had those thoughts. Like, was today worth anything? Nobody seemed to really get emotional or excited. But I've come to realize that that passion means nothing if it's not built on the right understanding of the Word of God. So do I want us to be passionate today? Yes, but I want us to be found, founded on the Word. Look, the people that he's talking to here, he says in verse 2, had a zeal for God or of God, but not according to knowledge. So what do they miss? Let's look at verse 3, and it tells us what knowledge they misunderstood. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That word righteousness, I love that word. And um, I try to find some songs that were in it. There's just not many I can find, but it's a great biblical word. I think in Romans it's in there at least 30 times or more, scattered throughout this book. We, all, we saw this, I think we saw Romans 1.17, Back in January, where it says, For in it, the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. And if I could just define righteousness simply, it's, it's being in right standing with God. It's where God looks at us and says, That person is right with me. That person has been made right or declared right in my eyes. And so that's why it's very depressing when you see Romans chapter 3. When we want to be right with God, we want to be righteous. We have to be righteous to go to heaven and to know God. And he says in Romans 3, who's righteous? There's none. No, not one. And you know the Old Testament verse that our righteousness is like filthy rags. So they've misunderstood it. And here's their problem. Their problem is that they failed to understand the means by which a person is made righteous. Why why do they not believe in Jesus? They failed to understand the means by which someone is made righteous, and they failed to see that the righteousness of God, being in right standing with God, only comes to us through a relationship with Jesus. That's what they were missing. And verse 3 says, they were ignorant of it, and they tried to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit. Let's look at verse 4. And lesson 4, by the way, is you can never be righteous because of your good works. You can never be made righteous by your works. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you'd note in your Bible, I would circle this verse, underline it. This is one of those very... Um, maybe one of the most important short verses that Paul ever wrote. Uh, this, it's a great description of kind of the Old Testament and New Testament, or the law and Jesus and how they fit together. Reminding us that Christ came to fulfill the law, and anyone who believes in him gets that to their credit. Let me give you Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see this here on the screen there. 
where Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to culminate, if you will, the Old Testament. When Jesus came, we know it was a transition from the old animal sacrifices and things they would do to now believing in him. It's not through the obeying of the law that one is made righteous. It's by trusting in Jesus. Is the law good? Yes. Is the Old Testament good? Yes. We should read it. We should study it. We should see how it points us to Jesus. And then we should run to Jesus. So let's look at verse 5 as he continues on to describe this. And he gives us some Old Testament quotes here. He says, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So he quotes here Leviticus chapter 18. And it's kind of, you know, kind of a paraphrase of that, but the idea of Leviticus 18 is if you hold firm to the law, if you follow these laws, then you'll be made right with God. And by the way, let me tell you something. Leviticus 18 is true. If we're going to be right with God, we must perfectly obey the law of God. And so what's the problem? How many of us can perfectly obey the law of God? How many of us break it every single day? How many of us were born sinners? All of us. We come into this world sinners. We're corrupted by sin. We're ruined by sin. We're depraved by sin. So this is a problem. But the answer is this. There was one who was able to keep the law, right? Jesus Christ came and perfectly kept the law in everything he did. He never sinned. He never had a wrong word or a wrong thought or a wrong attitude. Everything he did was pure and holy and righteous. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. These are some Old Testament quotes, and basically they're saying that we can't work for righteousness. We can't go to the heavens and bring it down. We can't go to the deep and bring it back up. We can't find another Messiah, and we can't make Christ do it again, if you will. We don't have to go go through all these extreme measures of perfect obedience to get righteousness. If there's one thing that sets Christianity apart, and there are a few things that set it apart, one of those things is that we don't have to go to any extreme measures to get the righteousness of God. It is, as it says there, near to us. It sets it apart. Listen, all the religious activity in the world cannot change our hearts. Do you have that person in your life that you're like, why won't they go to church? Or why won't they love God? Or why, why, aren't, why aren't they Christians? You know, maybe, maybe close to you, maybe great friends or family. You're like, why won't they believe in Jesus? They go to church sometimes. They've, they've, they've been to church before. They've heard the gospel. Why won't they believe? All the religious activity in the world won't matter 
until the heart is changed by the Lord, until he regenerates that dead, broken heart. And until God does that work, it won't matter. I heard the story of a lady, that was an analogy, and the lady had a terminal disease, dying. And they said, look, it's time to go to the doctor. And she told her husband, she said, I'm not going to the doctor, I'll look fine. And she got up that day, and she put her you know, nice outfit on and put her makeup on, and he's like, uh, we got to go to the doctor. She's like, I look fine, just look at me, I look fine. And, then, and the analogy is this, her face might have looked fine because of all the you know, makeup and all that stuff, but she had something on the inside she still needed to deal with. That internal thing, that internal disease. Are there people in this world today who on the outside have the makeup on? Religiously, they look good because they say the right things, do the right things, go to church regularly. Are there people, even maybe in, in our area, who religiously look like they have it all together, but yet they've never had that heart change? They're missing salvation by 16 inches or however far it is from the head to the heart. They know the right things, but they've never truly submitted to Christ. Lesson number five. And I would say the most important lesson of today, especially if you don't know Jesus, stop striving and believe in Christ. I feel like we preach this a lot, but I feel like it's necessary because there are people who think they are Christians because of some striving or some being a good person, being better than the next person. When the reality we see over and over again in Scripture is only one opinion matters, and that's the Lord's. And when He looks at us, He sees either someone who's born again, trusted in His Son, or someone who hasn't. Stop striving and believe. As a matter of fact, it, what does it say to God when we think we can do something to be saved? What's that say to God? Like, if I'll just do this, this, and this, I'll be saved. To me, it says, it says what God did was not enough. Is that a bad thing to say to God? The God who sent his very own son to be tortured and killed for us, for our sins, isn't it bad to say to him, what you did wasn't enough, Father? The God who planned salvation before the foundation of the world and worked all things together that our salvation might come to us, and we try to work for it and say, what you did wasn't enough. If Jesus was standing here today, could we look at him and say, Jesus, I know you went to that cross and gave your life, but that wasn't enough. I need to do something else to add to it. Would any of us say that to the Lord? I hope not. But when we try to strive to gain his approval or his righteousness by our actions, we're saying to him, it's not enough. And let me say this one more time to be clear. What the father did in sending his son and what the son did in laying down his life is enough to save our souls. We read it in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 months ago. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is hard for us, though. 
we're taught our whole lives, don't give up, don't quit. You're right, you played sports growing up or you were in school. Like, I want to quit. Your parents are like, you can't quit. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep working. I want to quit this. I want a part-time job. You hate it. I want to quit it. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep working. But when it comes to being saved, we must quit. Quit trying to do it ourselves and realize Christ already did it all. Stop striving. Stop depending on morals and religious activity and surrender. Well, how do I do that? Look at verse 9. Some of you probably have this memorized and you've heard it before, probably in vacation Bible school or something like that when you were a child, but a great verse here as well, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 8, the second half, and Romans chapter 9 tell us salvation is completely of God. But Romans chapter 10 tells us there is a human response. And that is, as it says here, to confess and believe. I want you to look at the first part of that verse. Confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord. I don't know that we emphasize that enough. We talk about repentance, we talk about belief, but confessing that Jesus is Lord, I don't know how much we talk about that. And here's why it's important. In Paul's day, if you were to stand up in front of anybody, a few people, and say, hey, Jesus Christ is my Lord, that could cost you your life or your livelihood. Because in his day, to say Jesus is Lord, what you're really saying is the emperor is not my Lord. He's not my king. I have a greater king, and that is Jesus. And for us, that's maybe no big deal today, but back then, it was a big deal. There weren't a whole lot of, I don't believe, a whole lot of false professors of Christ in that day because it meant something to say, Jesus is Lord. Where in our time, and especially in our culture, any one of us can go to most public forums and say, Jesus is Lord, and people will be like, okay, cool. Some people might say, Good. They might even applaud you. There are some places we might go, we might be persecuted for it, but for the most part, it's acceptable in our culture. Which is why so many people, I think, fake Christianity or can fake it so easily in our day and time because it doesn't necessarily have any cost with it. And so when Paul writes that we should confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's saying there, If God's truly done a work in you, then you will confess it. You will trust that he is Lord. Church, this morning, let me just ask ask it this way. Is Jesus your Lord? Or is something else? Self, comfort, health? Is that another preacher? Are you listening to another preacher during my sermon? (laughs) It might be better. I was like, that's funny. That was funny. Okay. He couldn't stop it, which makes it even funnier. He couldn't just stop it. I got to get out of here. Don't come back. I'm just, I'm just, who was that? Adrian Rogers? All right. If I see any of y'all with some headbuds in, listen to another sermon while I'm preaching. 
Uh, all right, where was I? Verse 11. Let's go to verse 11. We're almost done, then you can hear another sermon. I'm just kidding. I'm just picking. All right. For, verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lesson number six, God saves all kinds of people. He's not teaching universalism. He's not teaching that everyone will be saved. But as we said last week, both Jews and Gentiles can be saved. And for any Gentile who says, well, God can't save me because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, Paul says, no, everyone who calls on the Lord can be saved. And for those Jewish people who say, you know, I've rejected Jesus, I can't be saved, he says here, no, if you call on the Lord, you can be saved. It broke Paul's heart that these people did not follow Jesus. He prayed for them and he taught them, if you call on him, you can be saved. I love this thought of Jesus as Lord and I think that's something we should think about. I think, I think Jesus as Lord was the theme of the New Testament. And I heard this illustration about it I want to share with you. Here's some keys. And I heard this illustration about a pastor in the 19th century in London, a very well-known pastor back in those days, who, who as a young minister said that his Christian life was a struggle and was a, his, his ministry was a struggle. He, he never could find joy in his Christian life. He lacked zeal and passion. He, his ministry seemed to lack uh, any kind of, you know, fruit. And he began to kind of ask God, why is my ministry struggling? Why is my Christian life struggling? And here's what he realized. And he, he told this in a sermon many, 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 many years ago. He said, I realized that in my life, I had become a Christian and I'd given God the keys. Here you go, God. You have, you have the key to every room in my house. And here's what he said, except one. And he, he didn't even tell exactly what it was, but he said, I kept one key for one room in my spiritual house that I would not give to God. And I said to God, you're Lord of my life, except for this one room. And he wrote and said, the day I realized that, I took that key and I gave it back to the Lord. And he said when he put the key back, gave it back to the Lord and knew at that moment that the Lord had all his keys, he had surrendered them all to the Lord, his life and his ministry changed. There was joy, there was passion, there was fruit in his ministry. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you given him all the keys? And I would say for most of us, there's at least one key we have held back from Jesus, I would imagine. What is your key? What room do you need to give back to him today? Something in your life that's keeping you. And you say, you say, why am I not joyous? Why am I not having more excitement in my Christian life? Why don't I desire the things of God? 
it might be that you're holding back that one key. And he says in verse 12, Jesus is Lord over all. And the emphasis here is that, yes, he saves all kinds of people. Isn't that amazing that God is Lord this morning from, of people all over this world? There are people down the street from us who are like us, who God is their Lord, and yet there are people all around this world who are so different than us, but we have the same Lord. It's pretty neat to think about. There are Christians today who are in the hospital dealing with sickness and virus, and Christ is their Lord. There are Christians today in Afghanistan who this week have been threatened by the Taliban that they're going to be under persecution, and Jesus is their Lord. There are Christians today running an orphanage in Uganda who are worried about how they're going to provide for the kids because of the economy. And yet, Jesus is their Lord. There are Christians today scattered on, you know, far-out islands in the Philippines that we would look at and go, wow, that's out there, that's the middle of nowhere, and yet Jesus is their Lord. He's the Lord of all kinds of people. And this text tells us this morning, as we conclude, that anyone who has stopped striving... And anyone who has stopped trying to gain righteousness by obedience to the law or religious rituals, anyone who's quit all that and has instead believed in Jesus with all their heart and confessed Him as Lord, He is Lord of those people. Let me show you a review quick, quickly of these points. Here are seven lessons. Share truth with compassion. Let your desire fuel your prayers. Make sure your passion for God is built on a right understanding of His Word. Number four, you can never be made righteous by your own works or religious activity. Number five, stop striving and believe. Number six, God saves all kinds of people. And number seven, Jesus is Lord. As we end, would you say those three words with me? If you feel like it this morning, if you mean it this morning, let's just confess with our mouth these three words. Would you say it with me? Ready? Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.